You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet. On June 5th, 2023, the United States must raise its debt ceiling or face what has been described as a doomsday scenario. We're recording today, which is not June 5th, and there is an apparent handshake deal. I'm not sure if that means giving Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert some sort of special committee position, but there will be some deals with the devil. The questions that we're going to tackle today are, what is the impact of the failure to achieve an agreement on the national security of the United States? And more broadly, how does economic policy from the executive branch and Congress's power to control appropriations drive our national security, global reputation, and strengthen or weaken us and our position against other nations, including hostile nations? Are these repeated battles over the debt ceiling and the deficit threatening our prosperity? Tonight, we discuss the role of the United States economic policy and national security with David Wessel. David Wessel is a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings and the director of the Hutchings Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. He joined Brookings in 2023 after 30 years on the staff of the Wall Street Journal, where most recently he was economics editor and wrote the weekly Capital column. He's a contributing correspondent to the Wall Street Journal, appears frequently on NPR's Morning Edition, and tweets often. You can find him at David M. Wessel. David's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, In Fed We Trust, Ben Bernanke's War on the Great Panic, and that was written in 2009, and Red Ink, Inside the High Stakes Politics of the Federal Budget. His most recent book is Only the Rich Can Play, How Washington Works in the New Gilded Age. That's not cynical. Uh, <laughs> and we're just really glad that you're here today. So, David, thanks for coming in. That's a pleasure. Let's uh, let's get some basics. Uh, I assume that this is something that many people confuse, even smart ones. What's the difference between the debt ceiling and the deficit? Can you explain that? The deficit is the difference between the amount of money that the government takes in every year in taxes and the amount it spends. And pretty much every year, the U.S. government spends more money than it takes in. In fact, for every dollar the U.S. government spends, it raises about 75 cents in taxes and borrows the other 25 cents. The debt is the amount of money we owe. It's the accumulation of past deficits. Basically, the Treasury sells bonds, and that's how we borrow. And the debt limit is a kind of anachronistic thing that sets a limit on how much money the U.S. government can borrow. It's currently $31.4 trillion dollars. And let's talk a little bit, because we are a lawyers-run podcast, talk for a moment about what the Anti-Deficiency Act of 1884 is and whether it has any current application. The Anti-Deficiency Act says that anybody in the employee of the federal government can spend only the money that's been appropriated by Congress. So we very often, unfortunately, run into these government shutdowns. And what a government shutdown is, is that Congress has failed to appropriate money and so the government can't spend it, although it's pretty porous and we have all sorts of things now where we've done it so often that essential services can continue and those people get paid later. When we hit the debt ceiling, it's something totally different. When we hit the debt ceiling, it means the Treasury runs out of cash. They can't pay any bills. They can't pay bills that for money that Congress has already appropriated. 
And that's a big difference. It's also a much bigger swath of federal spending that's covered. Only about a quarter of government spending is annually appropriated. Other stuff is sort of on autopilot, like Medicare and Social Security and so forth, paying interest on the debt. Those don't require annual approval of Congress. When the Treasury runs out of cash, it can't pay those bills either. And that's a much bigger deal. And yet we find ourselves in this position yet again. This seems to be a dance that is engaged in in the United States unendingly. Let's talk for a second about this. You mentioned that that we literally can't pay our bills, but how is this sort of ritual of getting this brinksmanship, this place where we come to, how is this seen across the globe based on your years of reporting? And what does it say or, or signal or fail to model to developing nations about the value of democracy or a representative government? Sure. So first of all, if the Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling by June 5th, we know it'll be bad, but we don't actually really know how bad because fortunately, we've always gone down to the wire and Congress has come to its senses. Right now, as we speak, it looks like that's happening again, but we can't be sure. One set of problems is if the U.S. government can't borrow, can't pay its bills, somebody's not going to get paid, that has financial repercussions. A whole lot of people are worried that if we don't raise the debt ceiling, the government won't pay the interest on their treasury bonds. And given that the U.S. Treasury bond is seen as the safest asset in the world, we would be squandering something which has been to great advantage of the U.S., the ability to borrow trillions of dollars at very low interest rates. But I think you raise a separate question is beyond whatever the financial repercussions are and somebody doesn't get paid for three days or something, the whole exercise calls into question the ability of our democracy to function. And I think where we must be providing ammunition to the Chinese to say, oh, you know, the Americans, they're so big on democracy, but look at the chaos it creates in their country. They can't even, it's down to the wire whether they're going to pay their bills. The people in Congress are throwing verbal brickbacks at each other instead of dealing with the nation's real problems. See how much better it is to have an authoritarian government where you have Xi Jinping can just decide we're going to have a COVID lockdown and we're not. We don't have to spend all this time convincing a bunch of uh, aging members of the Senate whether it's a good idea or not. So I think that's the danger. And it's also a problem in that in the United States, we already have a problem of eroding trust in our government and eroding trust in all institutions, think tanks, the press, the courts included. This whole charade, this theater about something that has people scoring political points and not dealing with the real problems that are faced by the U.S. just further undermines confidence, and it makes it harder to make the hard choices that we do have to make on our budget if we're going to have a sustainable one. Yes, the assault on democratic institutions feels like it's been ongoing for a while and that this is just another period of malfeasance that contributes to a dim view. And I do know that most young people do have a pretty dim view of our current democratic institutions, and this kind of thing is not helpful. Let's look at the overall sort of U.S. economic policy. I think it's hard to argue that a lot of our political differences appear to a degree to be based on urban, rural, wealthy versus not so wealthy. How has U.S. economic policy shifted on sort of a macro level? And how has this altered the national security, if you have an opinion on that point? 
Well, as you know, I'm no expert on national security. It's pretty clear that the era of the peace dividend is over and we're going to be spending more on defense rather than less. Indeed, the deal between President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy calls for increasing spending on defense and cutting spending relative to the baseline on domestic spending. I'm sure that there are ways that we can spend our defense money more efficiently. I'm just no expert on that. Basically, I think there are a couple things. One is, as a country, we invest more than we save. We have to import rather savings from the rest of the world to finance our investments, both public and private investments. And we have that luxury because people are willing to lend us money. But it does mean that as we continue to do that, every year we have to send a little more of what we produce overseas to pay interest. Secondly, for years, we have underinvested in our economy. All the measures of public spending on R&D and infrastructure have been falling for years. Now, there's been some change in that recently. The bills passed by Congress in 2022 have, for the, for the first time in a long time, added some money to public investment, which, if it's well spent, and that's an if, will help us to be more prosperous in the future. But third, we seem to be putting up new walls to global trade. There was already a lot of animosity towards China and a lot of feeling that imports had led a lot of American workers to lose their jobs. And then came the COVID pandemic and the supply chain interruptions. And we now talk a lot about resiliency. And the idea of doing trade agreements where we set the rules of the road to deal with trade with other countries for mutual benefit, that seems to be politically very difficult now. And so I do worry that we're setting new rules on what investments we will accept in the United States. There are pending rules on what investments will let American companies make overseas. President Trump imposed tariffs that President Biden has refused to eliminate tariffs on goods from China. So we give the impression to the rest of the world that we're not quite as open to their economic interests as we once were. And there's a lot of talk of America first. And I think that's troubling because it leads people overseas to think that well, if the U.S. is going to be selfish, we'll be selfish too. And then things that the United States might want from Europe or South Korea or Japan will be more difficult to get because they're say, well, that's how you do it. We'll do the same to you. And going back to the idea that some of this is theater, I mean, some of the tariffs that were imposed during the Trump administration were not removed as one thing, but the foreign investment, I think at least yeah. our listeners would have some concern that, you know, China acquiring Lockheed Martin would not be a good thing, for example, and that there have been too many instances of foreign governments acquiring things to raid the intellectual property, and that this has also fed a cycle of problems in the United States for sort of growth with certain corporations. And I don't know if you agree, but it feels to me like that's probably a fair criticism. I do agree. I'm not saying we shouldn't have any rules, but we had some people from Intel in a couple of weeks ago, and they said, you know, this idea that we're going to decouple from China is unrealistic because we get 25, 30% of all our revenues from China selling semiconductors. Right. So are we going to put our most advanced semiconductor fabs in China? No, of course not, because they steal our intellectual property. And are we very happy that the U.S. government wants to subsidize the production of semiconductors in the U.S.? Sure. But we have to find some balance here. And I think it's all a question of where you draw the lines. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, spoke here at Brookings, and he talked about small yard, high wall was the word he used. And what he meant is 
We're going to limit what the Chinese can do on things that we think are really vital to our national security, but we're going to continue to be open to doing business with the Chinese, their investment here and ours there, and other things. But what we consider national security, particularly on things like chips and AI, is really hard. So I think we're struggling to find the right balance. I think one just fascinating test case is TikTok. The national security community and a number of members of Congress who've been briefed on this say, like, this is terrifying, where TikTok is just collecting all sorts of information on Americans, and we've taken off government phones, and we maybe ought to not let them do in the United States. I have a son who's in his 30s, who's involved in political activism, and he thinks, like, what do you think the young people in America are going to say if you force them to do away with TikTok? Do you realize how much this has become part of their lives? Finding the right balance there, and I don't know enough about the specifics to know what's right, but the balance is hard. And I think that where I'm worried is that when Jake Sullivan was here and people asked him about, well, it's fine that we don't want our companies to invest in certain things in, in China, but we're also telling the Dutch that they can't invest in China or sell certain things to China and sort of what's in it for them. And he, he called it burden sharing. And I thought that's a really hard case to make to our allies that you need to do things that you think may not be in your economic interest because we think it is in the global interest and you just have to trust us on that. So I think it's going to be a difficult argument. Yeah. And we had some indication of how that might go when uh, Macron took a trip over to China and then he returned and repeated some of the China talking points to exactly. you know massive criticism. He was immediately appeared to everybody you know, somewhat alpha dogged in that situation yeah. and was repeating some of the concerns that China would like the French to have. So I take your point. But one thing that we've looked at a lot on this podcast is sort of generally the importance of the economy and just sort of cohesion, keeping the country together, finding a way for us to meet, to have a lingua franca, to be able to communicate with one another. And as I mentioned earlier, we do appear to be in sort of an urban rural rift at this point. And I do think social media, including TikTok, is highlighting these differences. But one of the things I wanted to draw you out on is overall U.S. economic policy has shifted. One of the ways that it has shifted appears to have altered the national security in terms of cohesion. And that is a look at long-term versus short-term economic tools, as well as a loss of manufacturing and sort of an abandonment of place-based economic policies. What have you observed and what looks based on your perch and your years of experience to be something that might be re-employed right now to sort of steward us through this? Get to the other side. So I think what I'm going to reframe your question a little bit. We've long had concern in the U.S. about growing inequality, but most of that was framed as gaps between well-paid workers and poorly paid workers, rich people and poor people, black people and white people and so forth. But in the last several years, I think there's been increasing focus on geographic inequality. The fact that some parts of the country are doing very well and other parts are really falling behind. In some cases, they're suffering from brain drain, suffering from large numbers of working age people who have just dropped out. Angus Deaton and Case at Princeton have talked about deaths of despair, where they've blamed some of the opioid epidemic on this. And I think that even economists who used to think, oh, we should just give these people in Flint, Michigan, a plane ticket and send them to Houston or Silicon Valley and let them get a job there where they can be 
more uh, productively employed, even those people have begun to see that that just isn't the right policy. It's not the right policy, mainly because it doesn't work. People aren't leaving their communities. People in America are not moving as much as they did. They have all sorts of social networks that make it reluctant for them to move. And also the danger of virulent populism spreads in communities where lots of people feel like the system isn't working for them. I think there's a widespread recognition that we have to do things that help communities that have been left behind narrow this gap. There's some stuff in the CHIPS Act that's directing investment to places like Ohio, which have not traditionally been centers of thing. There's the Opportunity Zone legislation that was meant to encourage investment in left-behind communities. I don't think that worked very well because I think it was very well designed, but I think the instinct was right. And I think we're struggling to figure out how can we use public policy to help these communities catch up without making them sort of permanent wards of the state. Now, we've done some of this before. The whole Tennessee Valley Authority and the New Deal was very important in helping the economic fortunes of the Sun Belt. But we're struggling to figure out, do we want to invest in people? Do we want to invest in real estate? Do we want to invest in infrastructure? Do we want to do it with government spending as we're doing now? Do we want to do it with more tax incentives for private people to put their money in left behind communities? But I think you're right. It, and it is a national security problem in the sense that we are not going to be able to advance and stand up to our enemies and provide role models to the rest of the world if we're increasingly polarized and divided and sometimes in a violent sense. And let me just build on something that you said. One of the other concerns that we've heard during many of our interviews on this podcast is that these areas that are suffering right now have truly been the home of some of the sort of cropping and and building domestic terrorism um, issues that we've seen. But the other thing is, I wanted to circle back to you once again, that they're siloed as well in terms of information. This gets back to generally the problems with social media. Recently, a number of authors and a number of data scientists and social scientists have looked at the problem of how social media is having an impact. And so I wondered if you had any thoughts on the potential to not just bring in economic opportunities into these places or place-based economic policies, but to also sort of address the next generation through longer-term economic policy that might anticipate that Every other country that's a threat to us has long-term policies, 50-year plans, early childhood education, and they're playing the long game. And we may have a lot of young people living in some of these communities who schools funded by tax dollars are maybe not as good as what you and I or our kids would enjoy here in D.C. I think you're right. I think you raised two different things. One is, yeah, we have a huge problem with social media, disinformation, and the capacity of technology now to let people get all their prejudices confirmed by what URL they type into their browser. There's a complete erosion of trust in the mainstream media, and people believe things that are not true. And when the mainstream media says they're not true, they seem to believe them even more. And that's a huge problem. There are lots of little efforts to address this, talking about helping with better in school, helping kids learn how better to evaluate the information they get, all sorts of nonprofits funding local media sites to combat the the bad ones and stuff like that. I don't really know what the answer is, but I know it's a huge problem. I think that's separate from the long-term, short-term thing. 
I came to Washington as a reporter initially in 1987. People then were worrying that the U.S. is too short-term oriented and we're not long-term oriented enough. And sometimes this would be criticism of our politicians for only looking to the next election. And sometimes it would be criticism of our corporate CEOs who are more worried about quarterly results than long-term returns and stuff. So some of this is a familiar problem, but it doesn't mean that it's not really a problem. And as you point out, one of the things that's frustrating about us who think about the federal budget and the debt and all is some people talk about the debt as if it's evil. And our answer is, well, it depends what you're spending the money on. And if you're spending the money on, for instance, early childhood education, or healthcare for low-income kids, we have ample evidence that this pays off not only for them, but for the society as a whole. And it's a struggle to help people distinguish between government borrowing, which may be, for instance, not to be cruel, but Medicare for old people, that's current consumption. That's not an investment in the future. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but we should probably not be borrowing for that. But we should be borrowing to do things like early childhood education, to fight climate change, things that will pay off in the future. And we seem to be struggling now to to ever focus on that. And the current fight over the debt ceiling is just a perfect example. This whole settlement, if the agreement, if it passes, that allows us to avoid running out of cash is all focused on very short-term things. They're not dealing with long-term fiscal issues like how do we finance Social Security and retirement. They're not dealing with taxes. They did at least protect the things that were in the last bill. But so I think you're right. I just don't know how to fix that. Crises don't breed long-term thinking. It takes leadership more than we have. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But let's talk about how this, I mean, let me just sort of close the loop on that. My thinking is, Again, tax dollars are used to fund education in any individual place. And I feel like this cycle that we're describing of, you know, pockets of despair is like a loop that's continuing because without that spending on education in those areas, the next generation is more likely to be disenfranchised than even this one. And absolutely. And we in this country, we largely finance K through 12 education at the local level. And even though there are some states that are trying to even it out between rich and poor, it hasn't worked very well. The federal government doesn't spend that much on K through 12. And the early childhood stuff, we're making slow progress, but it's been very slow. A lot of people don't seem to understand why that's a good idea for the individuals as well as for the society. Right. They haven't read the data that shows that that drops incarceration rates by a very large amount. Not only that, but like these people, if you get a good start, you're much more productive as an adult. And that means you make more money, your family is less likely to be in poverty, but you're contributing more to the society. I mean, Jim Heckman, who's a University of Chicago economist, a conservative by any measure, like if you listen to him, you think we ought to spend on nothing but early childhood education because he thinks it's the payoff is so great. Well, let's come back to this fit that we have once in a while that is called the argument over the debt ceiling. Is this sort of constant tug of war, this back and forth, this always coming to the end? Is this manufactured repeated crisis anything that is sustainable? How do you see the current crisis, part two, sort of ending? I wish I could say it's not sustainable, but we seem to keep doing it over and over again. So it's hard to predict that it's not. There are occasional calls. Secretary, Treasury Secretary Yellen among them have called for doing away with the debt ceiling only because we have to borrow because Congress has approved the spending and the taxes. 
And if they didn't want to do the borrowing, they shouldn't approve so much spending or they should raise taxes. It's like putting everything on your credit card. And when the bill comes, you say, oh, well, I'd rather not pay it. So it's just stupid. It's become a political lever for the minority party to put pressure on the president. Sometimes they get something good out of it. Sometimes they don't. But it doesn't seem to be a very good way to, to operate. I do worry that it's becoming increasingly a tool. And we've just wasted an enormous amount of time and energy in the last few months. And it's had some negative effect on the financial markets. And apart all the other things we have to worry about, inflation, the banking system, the war in Ukraine, this is just a complete political game of each side trying to score points against the other. So is it sustainable? Well, I'm afraid we might have to learn to live with it because no one's willing to do away with it. In the past, there were occasionally times where they changed the law to say, if Congress approves spending and taxes, then automatically the debt ceiling is lifted to accommodate that. The current Congress seems to be unwilling to do that. So I don't know what to say. I don't think that we can go on forever with these little skirmishes and doing a little nips and tucks. Eventually, something is going to happen to force us to come to grips with the fact that our debt is growing faster than the economy. We're going from 100% of GDP to 200% over the next 25 years. The Social Security Trust Fund is going to run out of money in 2033, the Medicare Trust Fund in 2031. So we're going to have to do something about it. The good news is that eventually Congress actually gets backed into a corner and has to do things. It's just it seems to be more of a struggle now than it's been in the past. Well, I hope that by the time this airs, something has been worked out, just because I think we're all kind of tired of it. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a good reason. I'm not sure it's the best reason, but it's the one I can definitely associate with. Uh, I think that the problem, the thing that I find what worries me is that I'm always allergic to people say, oh, it's not like the good old days when we had better leaders in Congress. But I do think that there's seems to be an absence of people who can say, okay, We've been shouting for three months. Let's sit down and work it out. And I covered budget deals in 1990. Uh, there are people on both parties, uh, Lloyd Benson, Bob Packwood, the famous Tax Reform Act of 1986. We have done this in the past. So it's not like it's not in our DNA to come and sit down and figure out how to do something thoughtfully. Just at the moment, it seems to be impossible. And that reflects some of the things that you talked about earlier about the polarization of the society where people seem, some people have gotten elected to Congress on the platform of saying, I promise to be angry for every year of my two years in the House, and they're delivering on that promise. Yes, I would say anger is a significant problem. And I would also point out that in 1990, social media wasn't also operating in the background, and it costs well, a lot more. It's definitely part of it. And the you know there are many communities that don't have any newspaper at all, so people get all their news from social media. And that's yeah. really hard because... We're struggling to figure out how do you regulate this? We believe in a First Amendment free press and stuff like that. These platforms are not quite regulated the way the press are. You can't sue them for libel and stuff. But the genie's out of the bottle. And even worse, here comes AI to amplify it all with ChatGPT. I mean, the stories about things that people are told on ChatGPT that are just complete, they're called hallucinations, are kind of terrifying. That's just going to make it even harder to convince people of what's true and what's not. So right. it's a real you struggle. Could seed it. You could see it an algorithm with false information and it can resonate and yeah. repeat. And there's yeah. no mechanism at present to vet that. But there's also just, as you mentioned, a lack of critical thinking. And one thing early childhood and K through 12 education would do, you would hope, is help people develop a little bit of an ability to scrutinize things. 
Yeah. Yeah. We've been very glad to talk to you tonight. We hope that this works out in the next 24 hours and that nobody has to give away too much or or give anybody who shouldn't have a high level position on any particular committee uh, a prize for going along. <laughs> but I won't be betting my life savings on that because I'm I think I can uh, I think I can make money in better ways. I'm a little worried that your questions were better than my answers, but they were very good questions. Well, I appreciate that. I think your answers were outstanding. And I like to throw in a bunch of thoughts in one question, just especially when anyone's been a reporter, because your job has never been to confuse. But as a lawyer, that's been my job. (laughs) I see. Okay. I didn't make any lawyer jokes. I want credit for that. All right. Well, good luck with your work. Okay. It's been great talking to you tonight. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Our guest tonight has been David Wessel of the Brookings Institution. We will hyperlink a bio in the notes to this podcast so that you can learn more about him and you can learn more about his books. Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. Like and subscribe if you can. Remember to reclaim your attention span by listening to our long-form podcasts intended to bring you real law and information and not sound bites or clickbait and not force you into any tunnel where all you hear is your own thoughts. Uh, Send us comments and feedback. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. NSLT is written by me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. It's produced by the members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Francis Burkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is the wonderful Holly McMahon. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.